How many of you have ever been standing in a circle of people that are talking and they're not really talking to you, but what they're talking about is really beginning to grab your heart? And by the time the discussion is over, though uh, it didn't really center around you, you go away and you're driven to go seek God. You're driven to get your Bible and open it and read it, and it's as though even in spite of the fact they were not even conscious of you really being in the circle, because sometimes you can be in a circle and never get in on the conversation, even though they weren't even really thinking about you, God was using their mouths and their conversation to speak directly to you about a given issue. Have you ever experienced that? I've experienced it many times as a Christian. To me, it's one of the amazing phenomenons of the work of the Holy Spirit to see that happen. Well, coming to the Gospel of John... And this particular passage, which is quite a long passage, that's the feeling that I keep getting. And I want you to, as we go to it right now, to come into the text with that kind of an attitude as though you're not just sitting here staring at words on a page, but to see yourself standing there with Jesus as he's going back and forth with these Jewish leaders and the discussion gets more and more and more heated. And to see yourself as listening and watching the whole conversation go back and forth, all the while catching these nuggets of deep insight and truth that Jesus is giving them, and watching their reaction, and all the while applying it to yourself. I think if you come into the text that way, it will immediately begin to affect your heart more than if you just sit and stare at the words on the page and just wait for the preacher to say some little catchy thing that grabs you. As we get into it, I'd like to back up to John 8.31, sort of get us into the context. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered, and they said, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And as they even said that, they were in bondage to the Romans, as I mentioned. The flag was flying over the fortress, the march of the soldiers' feet. I mean, the evidence of the bondage they were under at the time was all around. But Jesus was not talking about that. He was talking about their sin. And he said in verse 34, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. So as we came to the end of our last message, we were talking about the whole idea of Jesus making you free. To me, one of the greatest things of being a Christian is the radical change that takes place in your life. And I came across something that so poignantly illustrated this freedom, I wanted to pass it on to you. A man was returning from a visit to a mission field in Africa, and he told an interesting story about the circumstances behind the translation of a verse in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, into the dialect of these people. And he said that the words, these were the words from Colossians, He hath delivered us, that they had a real difficult time translating them into this given language. But when they finally got it translated, this is the way it came across into their Bible. He has taken our heads out. As the missionary was shown that, he said, what in the world? Why would you translate that? He has delivered us as he has taken our heads out. And when the man was given the explanation, all of a sudden it came to take on a great meaning because what happened was they told him that these tribes people had lived for years in terrible slavery. And that what was done to them is in their slavery, they had these metal, huge metal collars put around their necks. And they were put on so tightly that they could barely move. And it constantly would bruise and choke them as part of a, a torture as it also kept them captive in their slavery. And so when they finally got set free from their oppressors, one of the great things they would say to each other in their conversation when they were no longer in slavery is they'd sit around and just say, isn't it great that we have had our heads taken out of these collars? So when they went to translate the truth in Colossians, that he has delivered us to them, he has taken our heads out, was such a great picture of that heavy shackle around their necks of how the devil had them in an even greater slavery. And I just thought that was worth passing on to you. He has, brethren, taken our heads out. So you bring that up in conversation at Coco's tonight when you have your pie.
Now, as we come to this passage then up to verse 37, Jesus is not through with the Jews, and they are by no means through with him. It's the point in his ministry where they're becoming pretty antagonistic, openly antagonistic. And I want you to watch Jesus as we move through here and see how he handles them. It's full of instruction for us and the ministry that we have as being the light of the world. So look at verse 37. He said, I know that you are Abraham's descendant. That was a big claim to fame. And he says, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father. You do what you have seen with your father. They answered and they said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father. Now they go beyond Abraham all the way up to God. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. And then he says this shocking thing. He says in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. I don't know how that strikes you, but that is a heavy thing to say. Can you imagine in all the columns in the newspapers where they advertise the user-friendly churches with these little catchy phrases of how warm and fuzzy you're going to feel when you, you go to church there. Can you imagine if some church put in the newspaper, come this Sunday to the friendliest church in town and hear a sermon on how you are of your father, the devil. You think anybody would come? No. But you see, Jesus said, you are of your father the devil. What a statement. We need to understand what that means. And he says, in the desire of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and so on. And so he goes on to confront them. Everything that he does here is designed to penetrate their hearts that have not yet been penetrated. And he ministers to them. And as he does, we see their blindness, their blasphemy, their birthmark. And then Jesus stands there as we get to verse 51, where we're going to end up. He stands there still, unruffled, as their loving benefactor. It is amazing to me to contemplate this whole scene. To begin with their blindness, there was a strange inconsistency in their lives here. In verse 37, he says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Jesus right there is trying to show them that there is a strange inconsistency in their lives. Without even thinking, really. They just stand there and they say, Abraham is our father. We're with him. They identified with him so immediately. And yet, the Son of God is standing in front of them and they have no room for him in their lives. If you were to go back, for example, in the Old Testament and just begin to poke around and say, okay, what was Abraham like? Jesus, in one place, says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Back in the Old Testament, there's a time when Abraham was sitting and resting and it was a hot day and he was sitting in the tent. And suddenly there appeared to him, coming toward him, three men. And as you move into the account, you realize that evidently two of these men are angels and the one in the center is God. You figure that out when you realize, as you track the story on down where they go and judge Sodom, the two angels went into Sodom. God stood out and talked with Abraham on the outskirts of Sodom about the judgment, but he did not go down into Sodom. And then he leaves, and the two angels go on in. Thus, you come to the conclusion that third person that was at the tent with Abraham was God. And you, you think it through even further, and you begin to realize this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. To watch Abraham and how he reacts to having the Lord stand in front of him is a wonderful thing in and of itself. Abraham, when he realizes who has come to visit him, immediately says, please don't go. Please stay the rest of the day with me. Have a big meal with me. And he begins to run around. And you see this old, old man running back and forth preparing the meal. This hospitality, this embracing of the Lord, as he's right there before him. 
These people claim to be, have Abraham as their father, and they are nothing like him at all. And Jesus, because he cares about them, is so quick to point out that very thing. He says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. You have no room for God's son. Abraham's had so much room in his life for God's son. You see him on the mountaintop when he's about to sacrifice Isaac. And the, the whole revelation God gives him there. So there is this weird, strange inconsistency. If you think about Abraham, his life of faith, the place of God's word in his life, Abraham grew up, it seems, if you look at the account in the Old Testament, he grew up in an idolatrous household. The place that he came from, Ur of the Chaldees, was an idolatrous city. His father was an idol worshiper, it seems. And God told Abraham to get up and go out and follow him wherever he would lead him. He told him to leave his father. So he steps out. He goes a little way. And what he actually does is he stays in this one place until his father dies. And then he goes on from there. And as he journeys out, the Bible says in Hebrews, knowing not whither he went, old King James says. So it comes to my mind now. I think in old King James and preach from a new one. But as he went out, not knowing where he went, what he lived on effectively was the Word of God. In other words, the place of the Word of God in Abraham's life was right in the very center of his life. Because he didn't know where he was going. He just went as God gave him his word and as he led him along little by little, literally throughout a century of his life. The word was everything to him. They said, we're, we're with Abraham. And he says, you're nothing like Abraham. There's a strange inconsistency because you have no room for God's son. And that was everything in Abraham's life. And you have no room for God's word. And that was everything. Literally, when he says, my word has no place in you, it's literally, my word cannot penetrate you. Now, if you put yourself in that place of standing in the group, this is one of the places where I stop and say, can his word penetrate me? And that becomes a real critical question tonight. Does his word penetrate my heart? To the point that when the penetration is taking place, my heart is moved by his word. And that long after I've heard the words or read them, that there is a, still something happening. Does his word penetrate your heart this day? That is a critical question. They had no room in their hearts, no place in their lives for his word. You see, they said we are with Abraham, but they really weren't. And what I see here is that we need to be what we say we are. There is a real need in our lives to be what we say we are because... There is a real human tendency to say that we are such a thing when in reality, if we stopped and really thought about it, we know we're not. They were not with Abraham and they were not with Jesus, but they quickly said that they were, you see. Now notice how he phrases verse 38. This is very interesting. It becomes very apparent if you read over it and just stare at it for a while. He says, I speak what I have seen with my father. You do what you have seen with your father. And I stared at that and thought about it and prayed over it for quite a while. I've actually thought about it for a long, long time. And it becomes apparent to me that they're standing there saying, Abraham is our father more than that God is our father. They're saying that. They speak that. But what they do is so far from what they speak that the way he puts us together, he says, I speak... What I have seen with my father, and in a little bit, a few verses down, he's going to say, and stop and examine my life, and you'll see that there is a perfect consistency with what I do and what the father is all about. He says, I speak what I have seen with my father. You do what you have seen with your father. God is not your father. Abraham is not your father. In other words, you could put it like this. You speak the language of Jehovah, but you live the life of Lucifer. And that all by itself to me is, is a very powerful message right there. I mean, if we just closed the book, closed the notes, prayed right now, and all of us went away to contemplate that and pray over it, you speak the language of Jehovah, but you do the deeds of Satan. Thus, in the end, Satan is your father. 
And they answered in verse 39, they said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. We need to be careful that there isn't a similar strange consistency in our life. And you know what? The truth is there are strange consistencies in our life. And I believe God wants to use this message tonight, this passage, not to send us away all morbid and feeling creepy about ourselves, but to send us away saying, yes, Lord, that's right. And I don't want to be like that. Don't allow me to stay like that if I am. Look at your life and say openly to God, is there a strange inconsistency in my life? Do I say, yes, I'm a Christian? Do I speak Christian but live Lucifer? Another thing I see here is that we need to be like the heroes we look to. If they would take Abraham's name and grab him just instantly, then that says he is their main hero. Who are your main heroes in the Christian faith? You need to have them. You need to find their books and read their books and, and so on. Or maybe they're alive and you can get their tapes. But ask yourself the question today, am I anything like my heroes? Am I really? If someone was to question me after church and say, who are your heroes? Who would be the names that would come immediately to my lips? Okay, identify those names. Now ask yourself, am I really like those heroes? I bring that up for a lot of reasons. One thing that comes to mind is that and we've seen it here in our midst and in years gone by where people will work their way through a, a theological system. And if you stop and talk to them, sit down and have a discussion with them, and you say, who are your heroes? Who are the flesh and blood human beings that have kind of led you down this road? And then you hear their names. If you go on to get to know them and where they're at now from supposedly following these heroes, you find out that they're nothing like their heroes so often. I'm speaking, let me be plain about what I'm speaking about. I want to be perfectly obvious to myself and invisible to you. I'm talking about Calvinistic Reformed theology. I'll tell you straight out, some of my greatest heroes are Reformed theologians. Charles Spurgeon was a Reformed theologian. He was every bit that. Calvinistic, completely in his theology. John Wesley is one of my heroes. He was exactly the opposite. He was Arminian in his theology. And we've studied all these things in detail in the past, so I'm perfectly comfortable discussing them here. And you look at uh, Lloyd-Jones, who was totally just like Spurgeon and Whitfield, Calvinistic theology. But you find something in these men that you also found in John Wesley, who was Arminian in his theology. More of an emphasis on human effort, whereas with these other guys, more an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Yet you find in these great heroes this passion for souls, this reality of human existence, this reality of what's really involved in a human being coming to know God, turning from their sins, walking now in the light. And you find this evangelistic passion to reach people. You find a burning love that goes with this great logic. It's what Lloyd-Jones used to call logic on fire. You read the Puritan writings. One of the greatest misnomers of the Puritan writings is that these guys were legalistic and overly preoccupied with the minutia of the Bible and living a holy life to the point they never had any fun and they were probably these ice-cold, weird, strange people. You read the, for example, the Puritan paperback series, what you'll find in there is that these men were more concerned than anything else about their experience of God. It was the greatest passion of their life. And when the Church of England, taken over by the government, basically, began to move toward Roman Catholicism, these great men of God in the 1600s were forced to either recant biblical Christianity and the intense emphasis they placed on knowing God, experiencing God, or they were kicked out of their churches, or as in the case of uh, John Bunyan, thrown into prison. The contention there with these great theologians of the past was always for the experience of Christ. And what happens today, and I'm just using this as an example, what happens today is we so often bump into people who quote these, name the names of these great heroes, but they are nothing like them. They're cold, they're clannish, they're cliquish, and they have an us for no more, shut the door type of mentality, and that is unhealthy, it is a strange, weird inconsistency. 
And really, in my mind, I'm just describing reality of what I've seen. So if you bump into this, if you pass through it, if you have friends that are in it, or if it's happening to you, think your way through this. And what I'm saying is, if these are your heroes, check and ask yourself if you're really like them. One of the biggest misunderstandings of John Calvin, and I'm not telling you secretly, right now I'm coming out as a full-blown five-point Calvinist. I'm right where I was in Peter when I did the seven-point series, seven tape series on election. I'm not just telling you in a roundabout way I've become a five-point Calvinist. I'm not. And nothing has changed since we opened the doors of this church 12 years ago or so in my theology. But you look at the life of John Calvin and you find him at the hospital bed. You find him one-on-one -on -one leading people to Christ. And then you have so many of the so-called Calvinists of today and they're cold, they're dead. The fire that burned in his heart is not in theirs. So all of that is not to confuse you off into the whole thing of Calvinism tonight, but to challenge you, if you have heroes, why do you have them? And are you like them? This is a good time in your life to check and see if you are like them or if you just name their names off, but somewhere along the way you've drifted completely from being anything like them at all. There was a strange inconsistency in their lives. And even stranger almost, there was a strange resistance to the help that they needed. See, as we sit here right now, I'm thinking in my heart, am I like Calvin? Am I like, you know, Wesley and so on? And will I take the help that God wants to give me? See, in John 8:40, he says, Now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You could put it this way. You could connect it all together and say, when I came to the tent and I saw Abraham with those two angels that time, he invited me to dinner. He asked me into his home. You want to kill me. You don't want the help I bring you. He says, you do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. They wanted him out of their lives. That's why they wanted to kill him. And yet, he wanted to help them. It is so human, I think, to be offended when we're shown our inconsistencies. Would you agree to that? I mean, really, that's what marriage fights are about a lot. You just point out a couple of inconsistencies you've observed consistently, and you can have an argument on your hands. But it's human to be offended at that. So in a sense, it's very human as Jesus stands in front of them, and he is very pointedly putting the finger on their inconsistencies. It's human for them to react and become volatile as they are. But on the other hand, it is not godly to reject the help when God is wanting to give it to you. And they were rejecting it. They wanted to kill him because they didn't want the help. That is strange. It is godly to respond to Christ when he reaches out to you. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. There's so much in every one of these statements. But he says here, if God were your father, you would love me. One of the most confusing things, I think, in talking to people, is that when they claim to be Christian, but there is no real love that you see in their life for God. Or if they're from some religion, let's say, that is not biblical, and yet as you talk to them, you, they're looking at you and they're sincere, and maybe they're what I would call a good heathen. You know how you have good heathens that you meet that are better than most of the Christians you know? You know what I'm saying? They're more honest, they deal with you in business more fairly. You know the confusion of talking to a good heathen. And you're, you're trying to probe and find out, why is this person like they are? Why do they seem more joyful than a lot of the Christians I know? More enjoyable to be around. And they say, well, you know, I have this sincere belief. And they begin to give you their sincere belief. Man, you can walk away from that and bump right into some backslidden Christian cussing, smoking, and, you know, acting like a basic speak Jehovah, do Satan type thing. And you can go from there and say, man... Maybe they really do love God. Maybe people like that really are going to heaven. But you see, that's why we need the Bible. That's why we need Jesus. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. And that is the discerner in all of that confusion. Whatever the religion may be, however sincere they claim to be, if God is their 
Father, they will love Jesus Christ. This is the bold, straightforward character of what you find in the Gospel of John. Jesus stands in the Gospel of John as God. John presents him as God. And he just speaks as God. John is just full of these kinds of statements. They're just everywhere in the Gospel of John. And that's one reason we recommend the Gospel of John to new Christians, so that they can know right away up front, Jesus is God. Because by the time you get to the end of the Gospel of John, it's been pounded into your heart over and over and over. Does Aunt Susie, who is a person who believes in the true potential of self, and has mixed in meditation, and a good time of oming out a little while, you know, and all of this kind of thing, and is on a strict, true veg diet, and marches against killing animals and putting them into fur coats, you know, all this kind of stuff. Is she really going to heaven? Does she really love God? If she did love God, she would love Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. Let it clear up the confusion for you. He says, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. And so their blindness... Their blasphemy, frankly, is shocking. In verse 41, he says, You do the deeds of your father. They said to him, Oh, you want to talk about fathers, huh? Now get yourself in the circle. This is ugly. All right, so maybe Abraham isn't really our father, but God's our father. I mean, we're Jews. And in the Old Testament, God says that we're his firstborn. He's our father. And he says, No, he's not. The devil is. Oh, you want to talk about fathers? Hey, everybody, let's talk about his father. He doesn't have a father. His mother was pregnant before she married Joseph. This guy is a child of fornication. You want to talk about fathers? Do you really want to talk about... Let's talk about your father. It's ugly. It's blasphemous. Here is the spotless Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, in the womb of a virgin, God incarnate. He stands in front of them, and they imply he is nothing but a low-life product of a low-level sin. It is radical, it's blasphemous, it is ugly. In verse 42, Jesus said to them, Of course, if God were your Father, you would love me. I proceed forth and came from God. He just keeps coming back, reaching out to them. I have not come of myself. He sent me. I'm not just the product of what you're saying. And why don't you understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Let me tell you something. They had developed a pattern in their lives long before this. Many of them older now. These are the older, established, wealthy, powerful religious leaders. They had developed such a pattern in their lives of being numb to the Word, not ever letting it penetrate their hearts, that at this point they are not able to listen to the true Word of God as it comes to them. They're not able. They had trained themselves into numbness to the Word of God. And thus, it is not surprising that there's no place for the Word in them. They're unable to listen to His Word. Thus, they don't understand it. So their blindness and their blasphemy. And then their birthmark. They were just like their father. Look at verse 44. He says, You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He is a liar and the father of it. What an expose on Satan that is. Satan was created by God. He was given the honor of sharing the immediate presence of God. In the Bible, you find the two most powerful angels we know of are who? Michael and G -G Gabriel, got it, yeah. Michael and Gabriel, you got it. You put Satan up in there, and it seems that they were created at the highest point of all the angels. When he chose to rebel against God and took a third of the angels with him, something happened inside of him. He became warped to the point that Jesus Christ says of Satan, there is no truth in him. Can you imagine what it's like to be Satan? There is no truth in him. He is all darkness, all falsehood, all deception. That's why the world is such a mess. In one sense, he's kind of like Hitler, highly organized. 
But in the other sense, because he's all falsehood and darkness, he's a mess. His whole kingdom is a mess. And that's why the world is a mess. And then he says, Satan is the father of murder. He is certainly this father of spiritual murder. He spiritually killed the first two human beings, led them into a severance of their spiritual life. He is a murderer, notice, from the beginning. He killed the spiritual life forever. Think of it, forever. That the demons once had as holy angels. They followed him and he murdered their spiritual life. You follow him and he will murder your spiritual life. He is a murderer. You follow him and you will become like him. Next time you go by a graveyard, remember the words of Jesus. He is a murderer. He is the, the beginning of murder as we see it in the world. And he is the father of lies. And he has had his influence, hasn't he, on the world? When was the last time you told a lie, Christian? Well, praise the Lord, he has taken my head out. Been years now. Oh, has it? I suggest you just lied again. Want to know the truth about lies? Listen to this. According to experts, shading the truth is a common practice. As reported in USA Today, Gerald Jellison said, each of us fibs at least 50 times a day. 50 times a day. He explained that we lie about our age, we lie about our income, we lie about our accomplishments, we use lies to escape embarrassment. The common reason for little white lies, we're told, is to protect someone else's feelings. Yet in so doing, we are really protecting ourselves. According to Jellison, here are some of the most commonly used fibs. I wasn't feeling well. I didn't want to hurt your feelings. The check is in the mail. I was just kidding. I was only trying to help. You see, as we just went through that little truth about lies, maybe you just suddenly realize, you know, there is a strange inconsistency in my life. I think maybe I have told a lie more recently than I would like even to admit. You see, the devil is the father of lies. He traffics in lies. Jesus is the way, the truth, the truth and the life. One of the most wonderful things about being a Christian, I think, is to take the help to these strange inconsistencies that Jesus wants to give and to follow him into a life of truth. You know what that means? It means you go from where he takes you in the beginning, from a very complicated existence to a less and less complicated existence. The truth that makes you free, in part, is the truth that gets you to stop lying. It makes you start telling the truth. I came across something that really I thought was wonderful. It says in this place where I found it, a boy who was 12 years old was taken into court and he was involved in a lawsuit. And he was an important witness in the lawsuit. One of the lawyers, after questioning him severely, you know the bombardment thing, to kind of break you down and confuse you, so if there's any lying in there, you'll spill out the truth in your confusion where they ask you the questions from so many angles. After a while, you'll find you've told so many different stories. Well, listen to this. This boy's 12 years old, important witness. One of the lawyers, after questioning him, severely asked, it's very obvious to me, boy, that your father had to testify, hasn't he? Well, yes, said the boy. In fact, he has. Now, said the lawyer, why don't you just go ahead and tell the court exactly how your father told you to testify. Well, he replied modestly, Father told me that the lawyers would try to tangle me up in my testimony, but if I would just be careful and tell the truth, I could simply say the same thing every time when they ask all the different questions. I read that and I thought, I love that. At first I didn't get it. It took me a few times. Some of you still don't have it. May I say that's a very bad sign. I could say the same thing every time if I just told the truth. I wouldn't have to worry. Oh, they're making me nervous. Oh, they're bombarding me with the questions. Oh, what did I say last time? I got to say it again this time. Even though the question, oh, just say the truth. And you can say it every time. There is a wonderful simplicity about being truthful and being honest. The devil is the father of lies. Jesus is the truth. We must not allow any strange inconsistencies in our life, but let Jesus lead us away from them.
He's the father of murder, the father of lies, and he is reproduced in his children. That is why Jesus said, your father is the devil, which is a radical thing to say to the custodians of the word of God. A radical thing. He says, your father is the devil. See, Satan has his people in this world. Your father is the devil. In the, the book of Ephesians, Paul writes about it, and he says that there is such a thing as the sons of disobedience. And he says in Ephesians 2.2, 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Notice that word, sons. Jesus said, you're of your father, the devil. So in a sense, the, these men who were obviously powerful and very demonic are not the only people who really are of their father, the devil. If God isn't your father, spiritually speaking, the devil is, and you will do the deeds of your father. That's the bottom line. Sons of disobedience, walking according to the spirit that works in them, the devil. Here's his people in the world. That doesn't mean that everybody's demon-possessed. That doesn't mean that everybody gets up in the morning and prays to the devil. But the Bible says that you're, either God is your father or the devil is your father. What you have to realize about Jesus is this. The reason he says things like this is because nowhere in the Gospels do you find somebody who's trying to build, for outward appearance, a giant following of numbers in the ministry of Jesus Christ. What you find is somebody who's really trying to honestly reach hearts, even if the truth offends them, and yet he is so loving in the process. And so he says, you are of your father, the devil. He was willing to tell them the real truth. He wasn't afraid of that. And he says, the desires of your father you will do. In other words, you can't help it. You can't help it. If you really don't know the Lord, then the devil really is, in a sense, the dominant power in your life, and you will do the deeds of the devil. You can't help it. It's just a part of who you are. There's a story that illustrates that. Listen to this. There was a scorpion, being a very poor swimmer, as scorpions are, and he came to a river and he had to get across. So he sat around for a while, thumping his tail, and waited for somebody to help him over. Finally, along came a turtle. And the turtle came up and he says, Hey, can I just ride across the river on your back? And the turtle looked at him and he said, Are you kidding? What do you think I'm crazy? He said, You'll sting me while I'm swimming and I'll drown. My dear turtle, laughed the scorpion, If I were to sting you, you would drown and I would go down with you. Now where's the logic in that? You're right, cried the turtle. Hop on, I'll take you over. So here they go, da, 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 going over. And the scorpion's riding along, and the turtle's going, Well, you know, this is a nice day, isn't it? All of a sudden, in the middle of the river, as they're going along, the scorpion gave the turtle a mighty sting. And they both sank to the bottom. As they were going down, the turtle said, Do you mind if I ask you something? You said... There is no logic in your stinging me. We're both drowning. We're both dying. Why did you do it? Scorpion replied very plainly. He says, it has nothing to do with logic. He said, I'm a scorpion. I sting people. That's what I do. It's my nature. And they both die together. That's it. If God really isn't your father, if you really truly don't love Jesus Christ, if you really don't know the Lord, you will do what the devil, your father, will influence you to do. You can't help it. And so he says, you speak Jehovah and you live Satan because they didn't know Jehovah. And as a result, they would not listen to his son. They were just like their father. They were unable to hear the truth. He says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So their blindness and their blasphemy and their birthmark. Finally, their benefactor. What I love about Jesus here is as he continues to get these insults from them in resistance, he continues to reach out to their heart. And as they get more and more violent with him, more and more insulting, he doesn't back down at all. Not at all. You see, I think some of us would stand with a group of guys like that and at some point do something like this. Hey... Let's not argue. We need to get along. After all, God is love. Hey, let's shake on it. 
and go have a piece of pie. God loves us all. If you're sincere, that's all that matters. You know, I think some of us might pull that. There's none of that with Jesus. Because he has seen the horror of hell. And he has seen the glory of heaven. And he wants these men to go to heaven. And so as he speaks to them, his word is utterly trustworthy. And what is amazing right there in that setting is that the words he is saying to them come from the context of an unblemished life. He's saying, are you having a hard time believing me, listening to me, trusting what I say? He says, let me help you through this. In verse 46, he says, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? In other words, he challenged them. He said, if you're having a hard time believing me, look at my life. Now I've told you, you speak Jehovah, but you live Satan. I speak Jehovah and I live Jehovah. Look at my life. Go ask the children that have been in the multitudes that I've talked to. Go back to the city where I grew up and go around to all the businesses and ask them how it was in our dealings. See if you can find one of them who says, I was dishonest, I was lazy, I ripped them off. Go to my family and ask them if I was anything less than perfect in our household. Go to all of those that know me. And he goes, you could go right down the line, go to the law. With beyond the Ten Commandments, altogether there were 613 things that the Mosaic Law required of your life. Go down the 613, see if you can find one and attach it to my life where I haven't lived it. See if you can find one sin in my life. Be honest, see if you can find one sin. And as he's talking to them, what you see here is that there's no way they could find one sin. Go to Capernaum, ask them there. Go to Nain, ask them there. There's not one sin in his life. One writer put it this way, I love this. He said that as Jesus stood in front of them, and they were having a hard time trusting what he had to say, he spoke with the thunder of a life which silenced all accusing voices. Jesus Christ is not just another human being. He's not just some guru. He's not some great teacher. He is God. And he says right to his enemies, you see if you can find one sin. And he says that knowing that the omniscient mind of Almighty God the Father, who is omnipresent everywhere at once, even the omniscient mind of Almighty God could not find one sin in his life. It is the truth that comes from the context of an unblemished life. He says, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why don't you believe me today? His word is utterly trustworthy. It is utterly redemptive. And I've been trying to show you that all the way. In verse 47, he said, He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. He loves them enough to be truthful and direct with them. The reason you're having a hard time with me, I'll say it again. You're not of God. Doesn't matter what all the people think, you've led them to believe you're not of God. And the Jews answered him and said to him, now they dig as deep as they can. Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? That may mean nothing to you, the Samaritan part. It's kind of like saying, you're a Texan, you know, and you have a demon. No, 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 no. To the Jew, the Samaritan was the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low, the most confusing, the most compromising, because they had taken the law that God gave to Moses and blended it with all of the idol worship. So up above Jerusalem in Samaria, the Samaritans lived. And not only were they a half-breed of worship, but they had intermarried. They had done the worst two possible things any Jew could do. Intermarry, number one, and intermingle, number two, with the, the idolatry with Jehovah God. So a Samaritan was the worst to them. When they all come down for the Passover in Jerusalem, from up north, where the tribe of Dan lived and all the others, the shortest distance to Jerusalem was straight through Samaria. Do you know that no Jew would go that way? They would go rather down through the Jordan Valley, which was the long way around rather than go through Samaria. In other words, Samaritans were germs, they were lowlifes, they were the worst of the worst. The worst possible thing was a Samaritan. So when they say, you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed, it is the greatest possible insult they can give. 
And I'll just toss this out to you. It is also the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. At this point, they are committing the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is to take the testimony of the Holy Spirit to your heart that Christ is God, and take it in and take it in and take it in, and then come to your final conclusion that it isn't God, but that He's of Satan. That's the farthest conclusion you could come to from reality of the testimony that Jesus Christ is God is to say that He's from the very opposite Satan, we know that you are a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. It is the ultimate blasphemy. For that sin, to conclude that Christ is not from God but from the devil, there is no forgiveness for that sin if you stay in that because there's no one else that can save you but Jesus Christ. If you reject His witness to you that He is the Savior sent from God, you are lost. And thus, they are right there. And so, his words, he says, even to these people, they insult him, they commit the greatest blasphemy, and he says in response, he who is of God hears God's words. In other words, you're having a hard time with me, but anybody that wants to truly love and walk with God can understand what I have to say. And his words here reflect a true rescue mission. Because as they get more and more intense, more and more volatile, he just keeps focused, he just keeps going in, he just keeps speaking straight to their hearts. They cannot push him away, they cannot get him to compromise, they cannot get him to go, oh well, win a few, lose a few. He wants them in heaven. It's the picture of of those of you that have kids, when you see your child start to hang around with bad companions. And you remember what those kind of companions did to your life. So you sit your child down and you say, Look, I've been there. Stay away from these people. And they're going, Oh, right, Mr. Ancient of Days. Nobody's like that today. But you know, if they don't listen to you, they're in for a world of hurt. And so you don't just say, Well, if that's the way you feel, okay, (laughs) all right, well, you go ahead now and just remember I warned you, but they're bad. You don't act like that. You say, No, 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 hold it. You don't understand what I'm saying. Let me tell you what I'm saying. That's the way he is with them. You're not getting this. And he wants their hearts, he wants to reach them with salvation. It is the focus of one on a true rescue mission. That's the difference between Jesus and everybody else that ever claimed to be some way to God. The Bible says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And here's what I want to say to you as we wrap this up. No matter how much they insult Him, He keeps reaching out. He never descends to name-calling. When he says, you are of your father the devil, this is not name-calling. It is truth. He never descends to compromise. When he answers in verse 49, he says very calmly, I do not have a demon. You can see him looking straight in their eyes. No, I don't have a demon. And rather than getting all mad and shouting back and throwing a fit, he says, no, 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 I don't have a demon. I honor my father. You dishonor me. He never descends to compromise. He says in verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. I'm not here for my own glory. There is one who seeks and there is one who judges. Implied and you will face his judgment, God the Father whom you do not know. And he calmly and he firmly and he lovingly keeps coming back after them. And he says in verse 51, Most assuredly I say to you, most assuredly, listen, this is serious truth. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, He will never see death. Boy, that is the love of God in Christ. You're a demon-possessed Samaritan. You're an illegitimate child. You're a product of fornication. You're from the devil. No, I'm not from the devil. My father is God. I've been sent to save you. And I'll tell you, any one of you in the crowd that wants to hear it, that will hear it, I say to you most assuredly, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Well, he sent them away with some powerful thoughts, saving thoughts. And I like to think that there were those in that crowd who went away and said, God help me, I want you. I don't want to say one thing with my mouth and live one thing with my life. I want you. Close the gaps, God, of those strange inconsistencies and give me a real relationship with you. And I can't help but think that when we go out and witness, we need to follow the example of our Lord. 
that when people get volatile and insulting with us, to just sit and lovingly, calmly remember we're in a rescue mission. And to just let the Spirit lead. Calmly sit there. I thank God for those people in my life that He sent to me that were like that. I would insult them. I would curse them. I'd fire off every different world religion at different times I was studying. Try to twist their minds up, make them doubt their own God, you know. And they would just sit and smile at me and look at me and keep firing off Bible verses. Bible verses. Jesus said, Paul said, look here, let me just tell you, Jesus said it right here. And I'll tell you, what got to me after a while was this. They had no, there was no selfish motive there. There was nothing in it, quote, for them to put up with an insulting, arrogant, proud, lost, drug-addicted failure of a wretched, twisted life and keep coming back. That kind of commitment that had only heavenly motives, it got my heart. I saw it in his people, that motive of a rescue. I saw it in the Bible and I, I felt it in my heart. And that's what drew me in. Jesus stands alone as the Savior of the world. He doesn't stand with Buddha and he doesn't stand with Muhammad and he doesn't stand with anybody. He stands alone as God. And he is never afraid to say the truth. And he is never afraid to show us exactly where we are because he is always there to redeem. And everything in this conversation and in this crowd is redemptive. May God help us, every one of us, to draw near to him. To thank him that he speaks to us in such a way as to give us the light we need. That he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life and that we can come to Him today. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, 7, again He designates a certain day, today. After so long a time, it is said, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Let His word today have a place in you. Let Christ have His place in you as Lord. Open your heart as we come to the end of the message now and ask Him to fill your life. Ask Him to flush out the falsehood, flush out the lies, to flush out any inconsistencies and to lead you forth one day, one step at a time by His truth and by His power and in love with Him. Let's pray. Father, we open our hearts to You now. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You, Lord God, for the light of Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You love us enough to penetrate our hearts in such a way as to make us uncomfortable with the strange inconsistencies that we allow in our lives. Lord Jesus, we offer these strange inconsistencies to you this day, and we ask you to work your work within us. We desire you, your fellowship, your life, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work within us to the very center of our being, that from the inside out we would long for truth, we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, and that, Lord, you would work this work that only you can, the work of salvation and the work of transformation in us this day. We come to lean wholly upon you, to trust you, and we ask you to forgive us for our sins, Lord, to refresh us now, to fill us anew with the life of your Spirit, and to send us out, Lord, renewed in our faith, to trust you, to believe you. There is no reason not to. And show us, Lord, that the falsehoods we embrace that turn us against you, that there is every reason to discard them. And help us now, Father, to let them go. And we will give you all the glory as you lead us forth. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.